So we see here the great love of the Father. Later on in the, in the book of 1 John, he himself in chapter 4 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he that, excuse me, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we think of God's infinite love, our thoughts should always chase us right to the foot of the cross. And what do we find there at the foot of the cross? A, this, this scripture brings forward our adoption. Our adoption says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Now, ladies, can we deserve sonship, daughtership? No, it either is by birth or it is given. So, in regeneration, Wayne Grudem says, in regeneration, God gives us new spiritual life within in justification, God gives us right legal standing before him. But in adoption, God makes us members of his family. Therefore, the biblical teaching on adoption focuses much more on the personal relationship that salvation gives us with God and with his people. So it's helpful to recognize the different and unique blessings of being children of God in our adoption apart from regeneration and justification, even though all are essential parts of our salvation. God could have chosen to simply regenerate our hearts so that we are spiritually alive and able to worship and obey his commands. He could have chosen to declare us legally right before him and forgiven our sins in our justification without having the privilege of adoption into his family, do you realize the angels are not called part of God's family? And yet we are. Now, instead of, instead of only standing before a righteous judge, we stand before a gracious and loving Heavenly Father who has welcomed us into his family. Our relationship with him has changed and how we relate to him has changed and how we relate to one another has changed. Now, instead of us just being a group of women who have the commonality of our sins being forgiven and we're no longer guilty, we are sisters in Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, but when <clears throat> the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it's really difficult to just keep on moving, but let's just quickly think through some privileges of adoption. Trying to talk about the love of God and the amazingness of our adoption in Christ 
is really difficult because it is such a massive topic. But I wanted you to have a couple things. And then I also, on your outlines, I left the scriptures there for you, wrote them out for you, because we're going to buzz through this because we've got a lot more to get through. But I want you to be able to, if I'm going to tell you to stop, pause, and consider, I'm also going to give you scripture that will help you in that stop, pausing, and considering. So um, what are some of the privileges of adoption? And I, I did glean this from our good friend Wayne Grudem in, in his systematic theology. So number one, an intimate relationship with God himself. Again, our scriptures we just read, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, that close relationship that we have with him. We can run to the throne of grace at any time of need to receive grace and mercy. We can have an intimate relationship with God. Number two, it affects the way we pray to God. There is no distance there. There is respect, but there's not a stiff formality. We can cry out, our hearts cry to him at any time. Number three, it affects our motivation and our obedience to God. Our motivation. Ladies, when you have such a great God who condescends to love somebody like you, does that not make your heart cry out to want to obey him better? further, more, more consistently. It motivates you to obey him. And closely united with that, number four, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit's leading us in that obedience to God. Praise God for that. The Holy Spirit lead us, leads us into all truth, leads us into obedience to the commands of God. Number five, now, this one, not many of us would say, oh, yeah, totally see that as, as a um, benefit of adoption. But our Heavenly Father disciplines us. Disciplines us. And yet, He disciplines us because He loves us. He eternally wants our good. He would not be a good Heavenly Father if He just let us go our own way and was... Um, did not regard our souls and did not shape and mold us into the image of his son. So he will discipline us to keep us on the right path and also discipline us to refine and shape us and have us come forth as pure gold. Number six, it affects how we relate to each other as part of the same family. Again, there's a warm relationship there between us now. You can meet somebody and instantly have a bond of connection once you find out they love Jesus too. That gives you all the things in the world to talk about, all the things in the world to have in common because you have Christ in common. Um, I've got a gal at, um, I give plasma. Um, my dear son-in-law actually exposed me to it. So, um, and I started going thinking, oh, he gets 50 bucks out of it, so I'll go. Um, but there's a dear gal there. She's one of the entrance nurses. And it's one of those you start talking, and then both of you kind of look at each other, and you're like. So I had Chris's, it was actually Chris's book. She saw Chris's book and went, 
that looks really good. And I was like, it is the best book ever. And this last time I was there, I was struck by the contrast. Her name's, um, I won't say her name, but um, she, we were talking and we were talking about looking forward to the coming of Christ and the amazingness that it's going to be to see him and to know him and to see him face to face. And then you get taken back in the back and you're kind of in a large room with everybody else. And definitely I felt like I went from fellowship, sweet fellowship with a sister to, okay, now I'm in the world. Because the conversations going on were not edifying, shall we say. There were some jokes flying around that I was like, So, but that's the difference. I immediately have a bond with a sister in Christ and yet go into the other room and, and go, these dear people need Christ. But that instant affection you have for each other because we're part of the same family. Number seven, it affects how we live in imitating our father as beloved children. So Ephesians 5.1 encourages us. We are to imitate God as beloved children. We are to watch him. We are to walk where he walks, walk in his way. So this is a glorious truth, ladies. We are the children of God. We know him in a completely different way than we did before he regenerated us, declared us righteous before him, and made us part of his family. Now, this is contrasted with B, the world's ignorance. The world's ignorance. Drop your eyes down to the second part of, of verse 1. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, that, world, that word world there means the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. It's the world system, the people constituting the world whose values, beliefs, and morals are in distinction and rebellion to God's. So how do we know that that's, this is what John is referring to? Well, if you look back a couple chapters at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does, the will of God, lives forever. So here's such a good definition. If we're like, is it worldly? Is it godly? Which one? That, that threefold definition, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is from the world. And remember who John is talking to. He's arguing against that Gnosticism of, well, it's just my body. It doesn't really matter what I do in my body as long as, you know, on the inside, I mean well and I'm good and all those things. No, it matters very much what we do with our bodies. We are living sacrifices. So he says here, the world does not know us because it did not know him. That word know there means to acknowledge, respect, 
comprehend, understand, recognize. So the world refuses to recognize our Messiah, to acknowledge his authority, to comprehend the sacrifice that Christ gave. They refuse to understand their need for a savior and that Christ is that savior. Romans 1 is very clear. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are very much to be pitied. Chris has said in our chapter this week, the worst, most unspeakable depravities of man emanate from within himself. And yet the world insists all people are fundamentally good at heart. They routinely point to evil originating outside of men, blaming culture, for example, even though culture is the direct reflection of men's hearts. If the environment could be calibrated just right, they assert, people would flourish on their own since they're essentially good. Such a theory is morally insane, but men would rather pursue it with their entire lives than bend the knee to Christ. Their ignorance is not an excuse. They refuse to believe the truths of the gospel and the greatness of God's love, just like passion in our Pilgrim's Progress parable. They grab and clutch anything this world has to offer because they want what they want right now. They do not believe that the things to come will be better than what they see right in front of them. So Thomas Watson warns us of some of the signs of the sin of unbelief, refusing to believe, unbelief. So on your outlines, look at number one. Unbelief is a God-affronting sin. They question God's power, God's mercy, God's truth, God's love. They question even his existence. How do I really know there's a God out there? And if he's there, how do I know he really does work? How do I really know he's merciful? You know, truth is very subjective. I believe this to be true. You can believe that to be true. No objective truth. No absolute truth for sure. That is what they believe instead of bowing the knee to the objective, solid, everlasting truth of God's word based on God's character himself. Number two, very closely tied to that, unbelief hardens the heart. So unbelief doesn't believe God's threatenings. He will never fear God. And unbelief doesn't believe God's promises. He will never love God. So both are true. He doesn't believe God's warnings and threatenings, so he's not going to fear God. And he's not going to believe God's promises because he's never going to love God. Number three, unbelief breeds hypocrisy. They put on a mask of religion. They pretend to worship God, but self is the idol they worship. They want to feel good about themselves, so therefore they'll put on that mask scrub up the outside and say, look how good I am. And yet the inside is like dead man's bones. Number four, unbelief causes the fear of men. 
Thomas Watson tells us the fearful man studies compliance rather than conscience. Do you hear what he's saying there? Compliance rather than conscience. He would give in something that he has determined in his own conscience is right or wrong. Rather than listen to his conscience, he'll just go for compliance because he doesn't want to ruffle feathers. He's more afraid of man around him than the God who created him. That trickles back to unbelief. Number five, unbelief is the root of apostasy. Thomas Watson said, plenty are once zealous and now despise preaching and have stopped praying with their families. So almost like that parable of the seeds and the sower where it's choked out, it's received with joy, but then it's choked out either by trials, by hardships, by the things of this world. So belief, unbelief is the root of apostasy. The sin of unbelief is the reason that sinners will be cast into the lake of fire forever. The world will not understand or comprehend us because they are incapable of understanding Christ. And yet, how often do we get frustrated because they don't understand? Or how often do we shrink back from telling them about Christ? We fear their responses or they're mocking us. Just as passion sneered at patience when he got his bag of treasures first, we don't want that sneering, so therefore we stay silent because we don't want them looking at us with scorn. Why are you going to wait for Christ? Why are you going to be so pure and puritan and holy? Why not do good things now? God will still love you. So they sneer and they mock. To wait on eternal things is absolute foolishness to them. And we are ashamed to tell them of the glories of the gospel. Jeremy Walker said, God is not ashamed to call us his sons. Christ was not ashamed to die in our place. No, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Our names were written on his hands and his heart. He suffered sin's burden, sin's curse, God's wrath and judgment in our place so that we could be called the children of God. Now, how can we be ashamed to live for him that died for us? If God is not ashamed to own me as his son, then I will not be ashamed to own him as my heavenly father. So because of the magnitude of this love in which we are called the children of God, we also see, number two, our transformation at his appearing. Our transformation at his appearing. Look down at verse two. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it is not yet it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So this is like patience in our Pilgrim's Progress parable. We are to be waiting for the good things to come, to have a joyful expectation, even though we don't exactly know what those good things are. We can't envision the glories to come because our brains are so finite. We cannot even imagine the beauty and the glory of Christ 
because we are so mired in these bodies in the dust of this ground. And yet we know it's coming because God has promised us it is coming and it'll be even more glorious than we can imagine. So A, we're in that tension of already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. John Gill said, though they are sons, they do not appear now as such. They will then inherit the kingdom prepared for them and will sit down on a throne of glory and have a crown of righteousness, life and glory put on them and will appear not only perfectly justified, their sins not to be found and the sentence of justification afresh pronounced and they placed out of the reach of all condemnation but they will be perfectly holy and free from all sin and perfectly knowing and glorious. They have a right to glory now and glory is preparing for them and they for it. And they are now representatively glorified in Christ, but then they will be personally glorified. So ladies, we're stuck in that tension of we are glorified, but we will be glorified. We are justified, but in our glorification, it will be made complete. Be on your outlines. It says, we will be like him. John Gill again says, we will be like him in body, fashioned like to his glorious body, in immortality and incorruption, in power and glory and spirituality, in a freedom from all imperfections, sorrows, afflictions, and death, and in soul, which likeness will lie in perfect knowledge and in complete holiness. We will finally know what we are eagerly anticipating now because we will be experiencing it. We will be there, and we won't have the hindrances of sin muddling our minds and our eyes as we try to view Christ we will see him as he is. What a glory. Wayne Grudem says, glorification is the final step in the application of our redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now, ladies, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Thomas Watson says this, The sight of God will be a transcendent sight. It will surpass in glory. Such glittering beams shall sparkle forth from the Lord Jesus, as shall infinitely amaze and delight the eyes of the beholders. Imagine what a blessed sight it will be to see Christ wearing the robe of our human nature and to see that nature sitting in glory above the angels. If God be so beautiful here in his ordinances, word, prayer, and in our worship, if there be such excellency in him, when we see him by the eye of faith through the perspective glass of promise, oh, what will it be when we shall see him face to face? 
Do you hear what he's saying? We see him now and we can appreciate the beauty of who he is. And we haven't seen him face to face yet. Imagine the glories of standing in heaven and seeing him. No more shadows, no more shifting, only glory. So our motivation for purity is his magnificent love and knowing our transformation at his appearing is coming. So we need, number three, our preparation for his appearing. Our preparation for his appearing. 1 John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So A on our outlines, let's talk about our hope. And I love that this word just keeps on popping back up and popping back up. Even as Yvonne taught us way back in our very first lesson on 1 Peter, this is our living hope, which is fixed on Christ himself. Now, do not get the order out of sequence. We do not, as Chris said in our books, clean ourselves up first in order to come to Christ. Our hope is not in trying to follow the law or good works or meaning it enough. God, if I didn't mean it last time, I mean it this time. That is not the correct order. Remember what the law did in, in our dusty room in Pilgrim's Progress? It stirred the dust up and exposed the sin, but it could do nothing to cleanse the sin. Only the living water of the gospel could cleanse the soul from sin. Our hope must be fixed on Christ, our living water, and living hope first. When God opens our eyes to see the magnitude of the great love of him, and he adopts us as his precious children, we will look forward to the day that when we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The cleansing he brings continues throughout our walk as a Christian through the purification process of sanctification. So B, let's talk about our purification. Our purification. Wayne Grudem helps us think this through. So at the beginning of our Christian lives, we have the gospel call, which God addresses to us, regeneration, by which God gives us new light, imparts new life to us, justification, by which God gives us right legal standing before him, adoption, in which God makes us members of his family, conversion in which we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for salvation. And then sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So do you see each one of those books upon books upon books have been written about we should stop and consider so great a salvation from such a magnificent God. But sanctification, we have the privilege of working in unison with God to sanctify ourselves. 
So it's something that sometimes is helpful when I stop to think about sanctification and the, the God working and, and man working, because you will meet some people who will say, oh, sanctification, you just, you let go and you let God. You just trust in Christ, you rest in Christ, and basically just sit there until you are blessed with sanctification. And that's not it at all. So one illustration that's been helpful to me is you have a farmer and he gets up in the morning and for months and months he prepares the field, he plows the field, he gets the rocks out of the field, making sure there's no weeds and weed seeds left in his field to sprout up later. He prepares a good seed that is going to sprout, he prepares it, he plants it, and then he covers it over, doesn't plant it too deep, doesn't plant it too shallow, but just the right height for that specific kind of seed. Then he covers it and he works the ground, pulls the weed. And yet at the end of the day, he bows his head to his creator and says, please, Lord, give me a good crop because I know it's in your hands. So is that farmer sitting by the side of his field saying, please, God, give me a good crop and I'll sit here and watch you go to work? No. He is up early. He is working long hours. Hebrew tells us you have not yet striven against sin to the point of blood. That is the extreme that we should go to, to fight against our sin and to cleanse ourselves, to sanctify ourselves. We have the precious privilege of obedience to our Heavenly Father, motivated from a heart that is grateful for his great love, his adoption into his family. So our sanctification is only complete when one of two things happen. We die and see Christ, or we see Christ when he returns to this earth. Then our glorification will take place. But until that time, what then? We need to prepare. We need to purify ourselves, looking forward to the time when we will see our bridegroom. That, that verse 3 says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, um, I didn't know she was going to be here today. You're one of my examples, Brittany. So um, could you imagine... Brittany just got married to Justin this last summer. It was a beautiful wedding, super amazing. So if you're newer, my daughter Brittany married Yvonne's son, Justin. So, um, but um, glorious event, loved it. We had so much fun throughout the whole thing. But could you imagine, here we get everything ready. We, we spend days making the room pretty, getting everything just right, getting the food ready, Everything's right. Chris and Justin and all his men walk in and they're standing here and we're waiting and we're waiting. And all of a sudden, Brittany comes stumbling in the door. Whew, I made it. And she comes strolling down the aisle and she's got sweaty work clothes on. She's got dirt smeared on her face and her knees. Could you imagine Justin standing there going, blink, blink. <laughs> he would have married her anyway. I agree with that. But, praise God, she didn't. But could
could you imagine a bride stumbling into her wedding saying, here I am, and the groom going, so, honey, what have you been doing today? And her going, oh, well, I got up this morning and I noticed some weeds out in the garden, so I thought I better take care of those. So I went out and I started weeding and I just lost track of time. And then I just, I didn't have time to take a shower because I had to get here, so here I am. She didn't take time to prepare. She didn't think it through. She didn't plan. I think you probably know where I'm going with this. How would that groom feel? Would he feel treasured, honored, respected? No. So um, my friend Sandy, and Yvonne has been a good example of this for me too, I had never heard of backwards planning. So my friend Sandy, we've, I've done a couple weddings now, and I have watched her in other weddings and then the, the two weddings she helped me with, she, she says, okay, what time is the wedding? All right. So you need this much time to do your hair and this much time to do your makeup and we need to put some extra time in there to eat because we don't want a fading bride. And then we need this much time for transport here and there. So you back it up. You start at the time of your wedding and you add, 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 add time. And then she says, all right, we had a 6.30 wedding. We need those bridesmaids and brides here at 10 in the morning. And you're going, whoa. But to fit all the preparations in, we needed every minute of time. So are we taking the necessary time to prepare to meet our bridegroom? Laying everything aside that might be good. I mean, weeding your garden is good, just maybe not on your wedding day. So laying everything aside that might even be good, but is hindering us in our preparations. Remember that the preparation must be, be started in the heart before it bleeds out into our behavior. We need pure hearts just as he is pure in order to see God. So Thomas Watson gives us some signs of a pure heart. Okay, as I'm striving um, super fast. One of my favorite quotes of Chris Reiser ever was in this week's chapter. I literally laughed out loud as I read it. But um, he was talking about how do we work through purification of our heart. And he talks about prayer and the devotion to prayer. And then he works into the necessity of daily um, um, intake of the word of God. And then he stops everything and says, am I wowing you yet? Read your Bible and pray. So I just loved it. I was like, that will go down all time, Rachel's favorite Chris Reiser quote. But it's true. It's so true. We need the word of God. How are we going to know who God is? His purity so that we can imitate him unless we're continually renewing our minds by his word so that it's shaped and formed into the image of Christ. How are we going to know? How are we going to submit our wills while crying out to him of our needs? How are we going to have an intimate, close relationship with him as our Abba Father if we are not talking to him through prayer, if we are not reading and learning and growing through his word? So some signs of a pure heart. Number one, a sincere heart is a pure heart. So this is a person 
with her whole heart is undivided. Again, that word sincere. I think Chris talked about it in our, in our chapter a little bit this week. It's undivided. It has a single-eyed focus and is willing to walk through trials and mocking and persecution. And he's not wearing a mask of religion. So that sincere heart is a pure heart. Whole heart, undivided in his attentions to Christ and willing to walk the path his Savior walked, even if that means sharing in his sufferings. Number two, a pure heart breathes after purity. And what does he mean there? means like that deer panting after the water. We just breathe after the purity. A gracious soul is so in love with purity that he prizes a pure heart above all the blessings, above riches, above gifts, above talents. He so longs to be pure just as his Savior is pure. Number three, A pure heart abhors all sin. And I like the descriptive sound of abhors. Thomas Watson says, she forsakes sin not for her own credit, but for God's glory. This is a sign of new nature when a man hates what he once loved and because he hates sin, therefore he fights against it with the sword of the spirit As a man that hates a serpent seeks the destruction of it. If your toddler's out in the backyard and you see a cottonmouth or a a rattler coming after it, are you going to sit there and be like, oh, sugar, look at the little snake. Come here, come here. Let me show you his teeth. No. You're going to run get something, either your husband, totally viable weapon, or something sharp to destroy the snake. Do we hate... Because of the love of our child, we hate the snake and the harm that the snake can do to our child. Do we look at our sin the same way? We hate it because we love Christ so much. Number four, a pure heart is not only fearful lest he should defile his own conscience, but desires to not, that should say, not offend his brother's conscience as well. He does not want to offend his brother's conscience as well. He wants to be sensitive to others, a desire to walk with those that want to be pure. There's a common bond there. I want to look like Christ, and because I love you, I want you to look like Christ. So as we're walking this path together, I'm going to make sure I don't put a stumbling block in your way because I want to encourage you along the way. Be like Christian and faithful on that pilgrim's progress way, encouraging each other, uplifting each other, praying together, and making sure, am I conducting myself in a way that is becoming a stumbling block to somebody else? Or am I conducting myself in a way that's encouraging them more and more towards Christ? Number five, A pure heart worships in a holy manner. A pure heart worships in a holy manner. There is a careful watchfulness over their own heart and an outward reverence as they approach worship. They're preparing their hearts, maybe even the night before Sunday, to make sure that they're ready for worship the next day. 
They're coming in, not flippantly, not when we, you remember as we were talking through worship a while back in Isaiah, not with flippancy, not with distractedness, but a single eye focused, but also in a holy manner, doing what it takes to prepare, knowing that gathering together with the body of Christ on Sunday is obedience to the Lord. Number six, a pure heart has a pure life. So not only are we gathering Sundays or every time we're worshiping, even throughout the week, that careful watchfulness is over their entire life. This is a person who's talking about the Lord with others, walks with the Lord, is disciplined in their spiritual disciplines. Again, that's your reading your Bible, your praying, your different disciplines, being self-controlled, having that fruit of the Spirit. Um, Thomas Watson also talks about they go to the bath to be cleansed. And he says there's two different baths. There's the bath of tears over their sins and the bath of Christ's blood to be cleansed from that sin. So they're running to Christ, confessing their sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive them their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. So as we think through these different things, are we laying hold of these in our daily lives? Are we making sure our heart is sincere, that we are longing after purity, not an after effect? Are we a bride looking forward to the day that she is with her groom with an eager anticipation and preparing ourselves, taking the time that it takes to make sure we are purifying ourselves just as he is pure. Um, I loved this Scottish adaption of this passage. Um, I, it's unknown who wrote it, but just a beautiful way of, of thinking through this passage. Behold the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. Concealed as yet this honor lies by this dark world unknown, a world that knew not when he came, even God's eternal son. High is the rank we now possess, but higher we shall rise. Though what we shall hereafter be is hid from mortal eyes. Our souls we know when he appears shall bear his image bright. For all his glory, full disclosed, shall open to our sight. A hope so great and so divine may trials well endure and purge the soul from sense and sin as Christ himself is pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would cleanse us, that you would purge us, that we would be women longing for pure hearts and not longing for our own good or our own glory, that we would not worship ourselves, but we would fix our hope on you. Fix our hope on the eternal things to come. That we would be patient with our trials and our afflictions and our sorrows here on this earth. 
as we know you are our good heavenly Father who has bestowed love on us. So the afflictions and the sorrows and the suffering will be used for our good and your glory. I pray that we would continually keep these things in sight as we walk forward. It's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.